0: Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's
1: Pastor Dustin. Let's consider this morning the Gospel of Mark. Chapter number 9, the Gospel of Mark. Chapter number 9, as we continue in our study of the Mark's Gospel. Today, the, um, if it matters, it matters to me, I hope. Uh, it's always enjoyable for me to be aware, but today's the 39th message. 39th message in the Gospel of Mark. This is the way we handle the word here at Ravenswood. Next chapter, next verse. Uh, We're not here to entertain. We're here to feed. It's my command from the Lord to feed the flock of God. And so um, today we're just going to dig into Scripture and we're going to let God's word teach us, teach us, form us. Mark chapter number 9. We're going to be in verses 30 to 41 today. And uh, I'll, I'll read these in a little bit as we work our way through the text. But by way of introduction, let me remind you of a couple, a few things regarding what Mark's gospel has told us. Very simply off the bat, the gospel of Mark has reminded us that there has never been anyone like Jesus. There's never been anyone like Jesus. We have been, as we've studied Mark's gospel, we have been asking who is Jesus, so that we know how to join him in his mission, in his work. And so the focus has not just been on what he says or what he's doing, but the focus of our study has been on who he is. Remember the the key question the disciples asked when Jesus calmed the storm in Mark chapter 4 is, what manner of man is this? Who is this guy? And so there's never been anyone like Jesus. Mark's gospel has been telling us that. Mark's gospel has been telling us that there's never been a teacher like Jesus. Mark's gospel, unlike Matthew and Luke, has not been to major on the long lessons and sermons from Jesus. But Mark 1 told us, Mark 1 reminded us that Jesus taught as one that had authority, Mark one twenty-two. Jesus taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes. So there's never been a man like Jesus. There's never been a teacher like Jesus. But the text, the text today tells us there's actually never been a servant like Jesus. There's never been a servant like Jesus. A fascinating picture here because we've talked quite a bit about Jesus as the king. And here we find, once again, a reminder that Jesus is a different kind of king. He's just a king unlike anything you and I have ever, unlike anyone that we've ever seen or met. He's a king. Jesus is the kind of king who serves. And later on, we're going to see that he's the king who not only serves, but suffers. In this gospel account, in Mark's gospel, we've been witnessing Jesus' ministry. He's been up to this point in mark one through eight if you want to think of it in this way jesus has been going up 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 in popularity up in fame up in influence up in the way the people are responding to him up in the way they're following him everything's been up 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 the crowds love him but now we've begun the journey of jesus in chapter nine in mark's gospel it's down 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 things are beginning to change because from Mark 9 through Mark 16, we're we're done with the fanfare of Jesus. We're done with everybody loves Jesus, so to speak. We're now moving our way to Jerusalem. And going to Jerusalem means going to rejection and suffering. Now remember, the, the disciples had been asked in recent passages that we've studied, about the identity of Christ and they confess that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe you remember that when they said, we believe that thou art the Christ. But they still see things a little fuzzy. They saw that he was coming to be the king. They believed that when they said, you are the Christ, they're saying you are the king. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's going to set up the kingdom of God. But he's the, he's a different kind of king than what they thought he would be. And so they struggled with Jesus, right? They struggled with Jesus two times where he told them that the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again. They struggled with that. Everything about that didn't make sense. And so in chapter 9, which is our, which is where we've been the last few weeks, Jesus is going down the ramp towards his purpose of death and resurrection. He's going down the ramp. He's moving his way now to Jerusalem. We're going to follow this journey for the next several months. But here's why this matters today. I don't want you to miss the context here. For those of us who are Jesus' people, we belong to him, we follow him, we love him. For those of us who belong to him, follow him, and love him, we go down with Jesus. We don't, that maybe is a little bit unsettling for us. But as Jesus is going down and down and down, we, we are also moving with Jesus. You see, the world is, they're riding the, they're riding the escalator up. They're fighting to be great. The world is fighting to be seen, be heard. The world around us is fighting for glory and honor to be first, to be known, to be big time. But Christians are not riding up the elevator with the world. Christians are going down the greatness elevator, if you will, as we, with Jesus, pursue humility, unity, and service. We come down from pride. We come down from self-sufficiency. We come down from pursuing this idea of being known and loved and and accepted in the world, we come down that elevator. We come down with Jesus. That's one of the ways in which we most walk like and with Christ. Now, I think today our church knows the gospel. I think you know the gospel. I hope you do. The gospel is that God, the creator of all things, created me and created you. And he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our service. He is worthy of our love. Yet we sinned against him. We worship ourselves. We serve ourselves. We love ourselves. We love our sin. And so in so doing, we as sinners have become the enemy of God. But God loved us too much to leave us in that position. So what did God do? He sent His Son to live on our behalf, to die for our sins, to rise again, to purchase our redemption. And so therefore, the good news of the Christian gospel is that we have been offered to receive the free gift of salvation that God has offered to us in Christ. The free gift of salvation is to, in the words of John chapter 1, is that God gave us power, if we receive that gift, power to become the sons and daughters of God. That's the promise of the gospel. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have been given the power to become His child. And we need to remember this morning that the gospel is the good news, it's not good advice. It's the good news... That salvation is given through Jesus to anyone who believes on Him and His finished work. That's the gospel. The gospel is not work your way to God. It is that God came to you and has died for you in Christ. The gospel does not give us a ladder to climb to God. The gospel gives us a cross and an empty tomb. Therefore, the gospel is not only believed, but the gospel is also then lived. When the gospel is lived by Christians, when we understand what the gospel is and what it means, and we live it out, the church becomes a place where the culture of the church is shaped by the gospel. Not the world. Remember, in the world, it's ride the elevator, the escalator up. But in the church, it's we join Jesus in coming down. And so when we understand the gospel was not that Jesus came to be great, it's that Jesus came to die. We embrace the gospel and what it produces is a culture in the church of the gospel. Uh, Here's what you need to get by way of introduction this morning. You do not get gospel culture without gospel doctrine. But gospel doctrine never sits alone. It creates new people who act and live in new ways. I hope you're getting some of this. Because so many of you have bought into the idea that when you place your faith in Christ, it was you got heaven, but nothing else here really. You're just kind of waiting for Jesus to return. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is when we believed on Christ, now the good news of the gospel is now what forms us as people. And that matters because our text today tells us what happens when the gospel is lived out. You see, gospel culture flows out of true Christ focus humility saturated servant-minded discipleship let we say that again for you gospel culture in a church flows out of true Christ focused humility saturated servant-minded and heart discipleship All right, let me give it to you in a in a math problem are you ready y'all like math Gospel culture plus gospel belief, excuse me, gospel doctrine plus gospel belief equals gospel action. That means that what the gospel says, and when I believe it, then brings a new way of living. And so what we see here is in this text is that gospel action at the very least, at the very least, is to be a servant. When I talk about gospel action in this message today, when I talk about the gospel attitude and and mentality and what's shaped in us, it is at the very least, it is to be a servant. I titled the message. I don't usually get too worked up about titles, but I titled the message in a way that I thought would help us to what it means to truly be like Jesus. Because that's what everybody wants in here, I think. So every Christian says, at least just want to be like Jesus, well, get ready for what it means to be like Jesus. Let's consider this text in three ways today. Number one, it's all about servanthood, servanthood exemplified, servanthood exemplified. We're going to move quickly. I'm going to talk fast, so roll with me. Look at verse 30, you ready? Servanthood exemplified. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know it, for he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now, if you've been paying attention, some of this sounds a little bit familiar again for us. But Jesus and the 12 leave the region up north near Caesarea Philippi. That's where they had gone in chapter 8. They're now working their way south. And so they're, they're passing through Galilee. Mark tells us they're passing through. It, it, it seems like a simple language of passing, but it, this is no, you ready? This is no passing comment, all right? I was waiting all week to try to see how that landed. Um, Jesus is moving through his home town. What's going to happen is he's going to pass through Capernaum, never to come back again. We're not told in this text, we're not told where their final destination is, where they're going to. But if you know the gospel accounts, you know how and where they end. Because in this narrative, the opposition from the Jewish leaders has been increasing And so Jesus' privacy seems important here. He didn't want anybody to know that he was passing through. Maybe also he didn't want anybody to know he's passing through Galilee because he just wanted to spend time teaching his disciples, which is what we're going to see in a moment. The text tells us what he was teaching in verse 31, when it says, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. This is the third time in From Mark 9, uh, from Mark 8 to Mark 9, the third time that Jesus has told the disciples that the Messiah was going to die and rise again. We saw it in Mark 8, 31. We saw it in Mark chapter 12, Mark 9 verse 12. And now we see it in Mark 9, 31. The third time. We're going to see it a fourth time in Mark chapter 10. Jesus, we call these the passion predictions, the, the predictions of his death and resurrection. But verse 32 told us they understood not that saying. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you, I reminded you that they're coming down from the mountain and they're like, what is he talking about? In Mark 8, Peter rebuked him when he told, when he said that he was going to die and rise again. In Mark 9, the disciples are like, what is he talking about? In Mark, here in Mark 9, the third time, the text tells us that they're just afraid. They're just, we're not going to ask. We're afraid to ask. I've thought a lot about this, afraid to ask. Were they afraid to ask like a child who's annoyed his or her parents long enough that a disappointed and annoyed parent is, is now a little bit frustrated? Are they seeing the frustration of Jesus? I don't think that's the reason. I, I believe the disciples are afraid to ask because to know more, to know more would be difficult for them painful for them, more confusing. They were simply unable to grasp what Jesus was saying, and they're not ready to fully receive it yet. These guys, the disciples, are concerned for the future, especially if Jesus is going to die. Now, before we move forward here, I need to make something clear for us. In Mark 8, 9, and 10, we get to these passion predictions, three, maybe four, that speak of his death and resurrection, and they do so in a different way. The second, this, this one to be the, it is the second very explicit statement by Jesus speaking of his coming death. Here he says, the son of man, notice the language of the text in Mark 9, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men. Delivered. I want you to think about that word for a moment. Mark tells us the words of Jesus that Jesus says that I'm going to be delivered. It means to be given into the hands of another. It's not that Jesus will surrender, but that Jesus will be delivered. Someone is going to give Jesus to those that are going to kill him. Who's that someone? It's none other than God the Father. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, the song you just sang earlier, it's not my will, but yours be done, Father. The Father was delivering Giving into another hand, into the hands of another, giving Jesus it's got imagery of isaiah fifty three where we see all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, as the Lord on the cross as the Father lays on the Son the sins of all mankind, so does the Father deliver the Son to the hands of wicked men. Acts 2 and verse 22, Peter tells us that when he says, ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you as ye you yourselves also know. You ready? Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. How was Jesus delivered into the hands of men? By the, determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Acts 2, Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, says it was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that delivered Jesus into the hands of these men. Now, why does that matter? It matters for, actually, it matters for many theological reasons, but I don't want you to miss this reason right here. You ready? while human hands killed Jesus, it was the divine plan of God that had determined it. Why does that matter? Because Jesus was obedient. It wasn't something done to Jesus by men. It was something ordained by God for Jesus. That's why Jesus said twice, the Son of Man must suffer. Why? Because the plan of God had determined it. So what is Jesus' role in this? To be obedient. To be obedient to the Father's will. Philippians chapter 2, Paul said, "And being found in fashion as a man, notice what he, Paul says about Jesus, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death." of the cross. So what was the response of Jesus to the determinate plan of God that he would die for the sins of mankind? What was Jesus' response? He had to humble himself and be obedient. Now, what does that have to do with servanthood? Simply put, in this text, Jesus is the servant who exemplifies humble obedience in his submission to the Father's will the question for you and i this morning as we consider in this passage jesus being delivered into the hands of men in his his prophecy his, him telling that's going to happen it calls you and i to ask the pointed question to ourselves this morning in our following of jesus do we exemplify the same the same humble obedience to god you you sang it not my will but yours be done father When the will of God calls you to something uncomfortable, inconvenient, something that you don't even want to consider, are you willing to say, not my will, Father, but yours be done? You see, there's a part of servanthood that before we ever get to serving, if you will, that starts with humble obedience. And the reason many Christians Never get to living out the gospel in action with other Christians is because they're unwilling to start with how the gospel makes us humble. How the gospel makes us humble. How the gospel then makes us humble and obedient. All right? Let's go to the second part. Let's second part of this. We see servanthood examined. Are y'all, are y'all with me? I know I got a couple of you, but I'm lo- I'm worried about the rest of you, all right? Servanthood examined. So we saw servanthood exemplified in the humility of Jesus. He says, I'm going to be delivered and I'm submitting to that, to to the Father's will in this. But now we're going to see servanthood examined. Look at verse 33. Here they're going to arrive at Capernaum. Jesus is going to continue to teach and ask questions and help them understand the way of the kingdom. Look at verse 33. And he came to Capernaum. Remember, that was Jesus' hometown. That was the base of his ministry. And being in the house, whose house? Peter's house, probably. Being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves, by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Now, did you notice what happened in this text? We've already been, we've already seen one time that Jesus told them what was going to happen and they were afraid to ask. Right? Now Jesus asked them a question and they're afraid to answer. Isn't that funny about us? Like we've got all the we've got all the answers. And then when Jesus pushes us, we're like, you know, I got nothing to say. <laughs> and here in this moment, Jesus says, Hey, what were you guys talking about? When we were walking down from Caperna from, from Caesarea, Philippi, what were you guys talking about? Really, it's almost like a parent who's who walks onto the scene and says to the kids, What are you guys fighting about? And the kids say, Nothing. We weren't fighting. No, no. What were you talking about? There's no indictment necessarily in Jesus' question, but they're embarrassed to answer him. Mark says they held their peace. We're not answering. In fact, Mark doesn't tell us if they ever answered. But he does tell us what they discussed. And what was the argument over? Who would be the greatest? The greatest in what? It marks explanation isn't given there. We can maybe, maybe from other parts of scripture, we can surmise that, 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 that it's, it's talking about greatness in the kingdom. Look at Matthew 18, one at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? And I need you to, I need you to work hard with me to put passage like this within the context of what's been happening. These guys are a couple days from the transfiguration when the father says, this is my beloved son, hear him. There shouldn't be a question about who's the greatest, but they're asking it and they're asking it without Jesus. Maybe because the death and resurrection kingdom talk had fanned the flames in these guys' minds and they, they become consumed with their status and their own greatness. Either, either, uh, you and I, we would fit in well with them, or they with us, because nothing else has changed since this moment. We still are, if we're honest, we're still a kind of people who who want to be the greatest. These guys consumed with greatness, success, prestige, fame, titles. We are still a people consumed with greatness, success, prestige, fame, titles. This is a regular conversation amongst these 12. Regular. They were talking about this often. Who's going to be the greatest? Can I just be honest this morning and say to you and me that me-centeredness, me-centeredness is still the greatest, one of the greatest problems of American Christianity? This kind of who's the greatest conversation shows that each one of these disciples having this conversation, they're concerned about themselves. They'd fit in great in, in, in Western Christianity. They'd fit great, they'd fit in great in Western politics, really good, really for sure. Because the conversation about who's the greatest is an ongoing conversation, even if it sounds differently. My needs, my preferences. What are you doing for my kids, my schedule, my money, my, everything's my, me-centeredness. Me-centeredness. The focus of me is an enemy to the gospel. You got to get that. If you want to be a Christian shaped by the gospel, the focus of me is an enemy of the gospel. There's a quote there in your handout. The me-centeredness of American Christianity has replaced Christ-centeredness and the church is suffering because of it. The me-centeredness of American Christianity has replaced Christ-centeredness, and the church is suffering because of it. I'm the, it's about me. It's me. It's my car in the parking lot. It's my my time, my schedule, my clock, my this, my 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 everything's my. My family, my spouse, my 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 kids. What are you doing for me? What what haven't you done for me? Why am I why am I not being cared for? Why am I not being considered? Why it's me me me. Listen, me-centeredness has replaced Christ-centeredness, and a gospel culture in a church will not thrive in me-centeredness. These guys needed an attitude change if the future was going to survive. Let Let me speak very frankly to you. At our church, there also needs to be an attitude change regarding this if the light of the gospel is going to continue shining from this church. We're in a culture that has made you think that everything has to be about you and that is opposite to the gospel. Selfishness is an enemy of the gospel. And I'm saying to our church this morning, I'm not chastising us. I'm saying if we're not careful, it creeps in very quickly and we have to guard against it or this cannot be a place where the gospel is supreme. What the disciples had failed to understand and what we fail to understand is two facts that when we are, mo- we are most unlike Christ, when we are selfish. You cannot be selfish and be like Jesus at the same time. Can't be selfish and be like Jesus. The next time you say, I, wanna, I just want to be like Jesus. I want to love my, my spouse like Jesus would. I want to serve my kids. like J-. You can't do that and be selfish at the same time. It's impossible. Secondly, selfish ambitions destroy our fellowship and our following Jesus. Selfish selfish ambitions destroy a home. They destroy a marriage. They destroy a church. This kind of attitude has to be rebuked. And so when we see the disciples arguing about who the greatest is, we need to realize that they are being selfish. It's a me-centeredness, and it has to be rebuked. And so Jesus is asking the question so that he can then address the problem. The, 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 The hard part in all this is, listen, the hard part in all this is, pride keeps us from being able to be rebuked. So what happens is when Dustin Moore lives in in me-centeredness, which happens often, maybe like you, it happens, it's a battle that I'm fighting all the time too. When I live there and you say to me, I think you're being selfish, I'm now in a place of pride where I can't accept your rebuke. So there's a massive problem here. So when a pastor gets up and says, we are not to be a me-centered church and you go, well, everybody else in here is me-centered, but not me. The problem is, our pride is keeping us from saying, we all want to be like Jesus, so we have to crucify selfishness. Right? That's the only way. That's the only way in in a marriage. It's the only way in a home. It's the only way to bring the gospel into your work environment is to not make everything about you. The selfishness leads us to being offended. Offended and building up of relational walls. And it's such a dangerous attitude that in verse 35, Jesus sat down. Look at verse 35. He sat down like a teacher would sit down. And he called the 12 and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. He lays out a principle here that if you want to be great, and here specifically, Jesus is speaking of great in the eyes of God, Great in the kingdom of God. I don't care about being great in the kingdom of this world. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you want God, you want to be great in the eyes of God, which really is all that should matter. Jesus gives you the prescription. The same shall be last of all. What Jesus does here is he points to the very divergence between him and the world The world says, be great and serve yourself, or better yet, be great and be served. But Jesus says, true greatness is found in serving. That's what Jesus says. To be great is for you and me to be willing to be made last in the eyes of the world in the eyes of the world to be great is to be to be great is to be successful and to be ranked and to be, uh, be to be in the status but for jesus in the eyes of the kingdom it's actually greatness is found in serving Greatness is found in serving in a nursery, serving coffee, serving at a door, serving at a parking lot, serving at a Juana, serving in kids' church right now, serving, serving one another, making meals for somebody, considering one another in love and, 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 and honor. What is that? That is what it means to be great in the eyes of God. Great in the eyes of God. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 27, And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. James Edwards. James Edwards uh, is a a guy who wrote a commentary, and so I I give this quote because I think it's helpful. He says in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. That's greatness in serving others. Well, this conversation isn't going to go away for Jesus because in Mark 10, 43, he's going to talk about it again. Where he says, whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. He's not talking about minister as in in a pastoral sense. He's saying the one that is great among you is the one that serves you. Can I just, can I give us a very odd challenge today? Let's all try to outserve each other. And what I mean by that is not competing with one another. But let's just be the kind of church where our our desire for greatness is a kingdom greatness that means that we are constant. You know, there should be an overwhelming mentality of service in the Lord's church. Jesus said in Luke 22, he said, but I am among you as he that serveth. The context is, you're looking for greatness. I'm the one who's ultimately the greatest and I'm serving you. To illustrate the point, Jesus does something very meaningful. Look at verse 36. And he took a child and sat him in the midst of them. I, I, I want you to understand that Jesus is now going to say, this is so important that I'm going I'm to illustrate this point for you. I'm going to illustrate the point. So he's sitting down, remember? He's in this house. The 12 have been called to him. He sits down, and he calls a child unto him. Now, again, this is where understanding the context of the Bible matters. Because here and then in chapter 10, Jesus shows tender affection for these children, for children. Now, you have to understand here that in Greek and Jewish society, where there was a high mortality rate of children along with a need for children to be used as human labor, they weren't very sentimental about children like you and I are. They loved their kids. But kids were, they, were, they worked around the house. They were very engaged in the labor. They, kids died at young ages because of sickness. So there wasn't the way in which we in Western society think of children In fact, children in this day would have, if you will, other than a servant, a household servant, they would have been considered maybe last in the way of service. That's historical context for you. Whether you like that or not, that's just what it was. And so what Jesus is doing is he's enacting a parable and the child here is exemplifying someone that we might or the disciples might deem as insignificant or little or not great. And it is these that Jesus says, notice in verse 36, and when he had taken him in his arms, by the way, I, let me just say, you won't find another religious figure, if I can use that phrase, treating children with honor like Jesus does. You won't find it. Look at verse 36, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto him, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Now you gotta understand, Jesus, yes, is speaking of children. We often take that and we say, the one that receives children is receiving in Jesus' name. The point is to see into the illustration that Jesus is not simply speaking of children, although he is. He is speaking of the one that you or the world or others might seem or deem to be insignificant or less than. Jesus says, if you take someone who can't give anything back to you and you serve them, you've done it to me. If you go downstairs and you go into the nursery today, I promise you those kids are so consumed with playing that they're not thinking what they can give you. They're not going to honor you. They're not going to dote on you. They're not going to bow down before you. They don't care about your resume. They don't care about your promotion at work. They don't care what your bank account looks like. They don't care. So when you when you take the child in the illustration, you say, I want to serve the one who doesn't make me feel great. And I do that unto Jesus. That is true service. And in the body of Christ and in the church, it is our gospel call to serve one another. I don't need you to to dote on me. I don't need you to bow before me. I don't need you to to be promoting me. That's not what this church is to be about. This church is to be about you and me in service to one another. Are y'all with that? I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down this morning. Because this is the heart of what a gospel church looks like. You can't be that if you're not willing to serve one another. Thirdly, and we're moving to a conclusion here, Jesus gives us not only the first thing we saw was servanthood exemplified, servanthood examined, servanthood thirdly explained. There's a great irony in Mark's usage in the story. The disciples have, and we're going to see it. it they're going to speak up. I, 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 maybe I'm reading into this a little bit. Maybe not. I don't know. But Jesus has taught them. And instead of accepting the teaching, John pipes up. John's like, hey, can we change conversation for a minute? Because this is really uncomfortable. That's kind of the picture here. So what happens in verse 38? And John answered him and said, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followed not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. It really sounds like John cares about his greatness, right? They're not following us, Lord. He was doing something in Your name, but because he wasn't following us, we told him to stop. Seems like the disciples care about their own greatness, don't they? Verse thirty-nine. But Jesus said, "Forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in My name that can lightly speak evil of Me." What's He saying? He's saying, the one that's doing work in my name, he's, he's not against me. He's not speaking ill of me. He's not my enemy. Verse 40, for he that is not against us is on our part. All of this rebuke from Christ Graciously given at their is given at their lack of humility, their desire for greatness, their desire for being followed, their desire for for Lord. He wasn't following us. And so because he wasn't following us, we're following you. He's not for us because he's not with us. And Jesus said, forbid him not. What are you guys doing? That's kind of the way it's going here. Jesus says in verse 41. Well, whosoever shall give you a cup of water, a cup of water to drink in my name because ye belong to Christ. Verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Notice those words. Give you a cup of water to drink in my name? I'll be honest with you. If you, after the church, walked up to somebody in this church and tried to give them a cup of water, they might look at you and be like, thanks? It seems to be a small, very simple task, doesn't it? at least for us. I've been talking for the last 43 minutes. If you come up to me with a cup of water after church, I will hug you. Here's the point Jesus is making. If you serve his people in the simplest of ways, there are rewards for you. That's the the plain teaching. It's always mind, can I just be direct? It's mind-boggling to me. When Christians don't want to serve, I don't understand it. I can't understand how we who have been served so much by Christ are unwilling to serve. Along with that, add to that, there's rewards available. Now, I, I, I'm going to conclude. And I, I, can, I want to conclude by, by being honest with you this morning about our church. I want you to hear me. I'm not going to yell it at you. I'm not going to speak down at us. I'm going to include myself in this. I have become extremely burdened for our church and the future of our church. We cannot be content with just knowing the gospel. Some of you know it, and you're going to go to heaven because of it. You've believed it, and I rejoice with you over that. But we need to stop being content with just getting heaven. We need to let the gospel we know and believe transform how we see our relationships in this room. The gospel will move us away if we let it. It will move us away from being preoccupied with self to then become occupied with Christ and His mission. The gospel will. The gospel will move you and me from being preoccupied with ourselves to be occupied with Christ and his mission. The gospel tells me that Jesus died for not just me. Therefore, it is my one way I get to be like Christ in the gospel is to also die to myself in service of you. I look around our church. I looked at people greeting this morning. I looked at people at doors. We've got uh, that have opened doors for you that have handed you outlines that have helped you park that will help you get out of the parking lot that have sang for you that have watched kids and taught kids and changed diapers and will serve in a tonight and have done so many simple tasks. Can I encourage us as a church? Don't be too big to serve and don't be too big to say thank you. We are a gospel-centered church. That means we, from the gospel, look out for one another. We're patient with one another. We're encouraging to one another. We give of ourselves to one another. We try to meet needs to the best of our ability without crushing ourselves under the load of it. We live to serve and help one another. It's not a burden. This church is not a burden. It shouldn't be a burden to you. This is our great joy. For us to know and confess that Christ is our Lord is for us to know and confess that he served us. That we serve others. That we are made to serve. We're made to serve God. And in serving one another, we're serving God. But the danger for us is we instead become servants to sin. Servants to self. When I was a child growing up, my pastor used to quote a poem. He quoted often. I didn't know, I thought he wrote it actually. Wasn't until a few days ago, he never gave anybody credit for it. it. Wasn't until a few days ago that I heard the poem again in a different context. Somebody said it, I thought, oh, I've heard that. I think I must have heard my pastor growing up. And then he told me who, the person speaking, said who wrote the poem. It's actually a song. Again, I was like three days ago that I learned that it was actually a song. I didn't know that. It's in your handout. I want you to I want you to follow the words as I read it for you. Charles Meggs wrote this hymn. You ready? Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain. May efforts be to rise again unless to live for others. And when my work on earth is done and my new work in heaven's begun, may I forget the crown I've won while thinking still of others. And here's the chorus of the song. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. It's good words, isn't it? When you are tempted throughout your life this week to think of only yourself, maybe think of the last couple lines. Lord, help me to live for others that I may live like thee. What kind of a servant is Jesus? Jesus is a servant who dies for sinners. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the gospel. The gospel is that God made you. You sinned against him. He sent Jesus to die in your place. You have a choice. You can receive the free gift of salvation or you can reject it. But why would you want to reject a free gift? A gift that gives you heaven. A gift that gives you the body of Christ. A gift that gives you God as a father, Jesus as your savior, the Holy Spirit as your comforter. If you're here and you don't know Christ, we'd love to introduce you to Jesus. You've heard all about him for the last 49 minutes. That's what our church is about. It's all about Jesus. And if you don't know Christ, we pray today that you'd, that you'd come to him in faith. If you know him, it's not enough just to know him. You say, well, I want to live like him. Then serve someone. Serve someone else, that we may be like Jesus.
0: Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, Your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.